We are wrapping up our series that we've been doing together called Organic. We're looking at some of the key elements that need to be in the church in order for the church to thrive. And I think as we try and, and hit reset during these months, and certainly heading towards September and really trying to hit reset on what it means to be the church and be together and be in this space, it's good for us to say, what do we really need to focus on? What's really super important? So we've been looking at the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, and trying to discern together uh, what we need to take away from all this information uh, that we have. So today we're going to be reading in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. We're going to do that in a minute. Now, if you were with us for the Wednesday evening study and prayer time over the last number of weeks, uh, you will know Titus like the back of your hand, Right? So I could call on you right now to give a summary of Titus, starting with, no, I won't do it. But if, for those of you who weren't part of that study, uh, you can still watch it on Right Now Media if you want access to that, or I'll give a brief intro to the short book of Titus right now. Titus is a young Greek leader, and this is one of the things that Paul does really well. Paul identifies, mentors, trains up, and equips the next generation of leaders. Right there should be the end of the sermon. <laughs> That's what we should all be doing. We, we need, get, need to give ourselves to that. If we're concerned at all about the health of the church going forward, we need to identify, train up, mentor, and empower the next generation of leaders. And that's what Paul does. He does it with Timothy, and he does it with Titus. He sends Timothy to Ephesus, and he sends Titus to Crete. And Crete is this weird little island that has a bad reputation. It would be very difficult to uh, get the church on track, I think, at Crete. Crete. Um, one of Crete's own prophets, says Paul, uh, calls this uh, about Cretans. He says, uh, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That's right in the Bible. Paul is quoting a prophet uh, saying that about his own people. That's how he describes them. Liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. In fact, people on the Isle of Crete were so proud because they believed that the Greek god Zeus originated on the island. And so they kind of modeled themselves after Zeus, and Zeus was actually a liar, an evil brute, and a bit of a lazy glutton. So they were just following the example of their god. That's why Paul, when he writes to Titus, right in the opening of the book, he introduces God as the God who does not lie. That's very intentional because Paul wants to make sure that everybody knows that the God that we worship is not Zeus, is not like the other gods that we encounter. This is the God who does not lie. So there's a little bit about that. You can imagine the challenge. So let's read from Titus chapter 2 and verses 1 to 15. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living 
that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. Why do people laugh at that when I say? These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and to be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. We'll mention that in a moment. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely, and you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who will oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Slaves must always obey their masters and do what is best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary, so don't let anyone Disregard what you say. This is the word of the Lord. I think we have a uh, recap slide, and maybe we'll just have a look at this. Um, as we've been going through and trying to discern what the key elements are, we've learned a lot from Timothy. Now we're going to add one from Titus. If we don't have it, that's okay. I'll just go over it. Um, they are sent to get the church back on track by paying attention to particular tasks. The first task is supplicating prayer. That's of key importance. And by supplicating prayer, we mean praying not only for your own needs, but praying for others. And not just praying for others, but praying for those who disagree with you. And not just those who disagree with you, but even the emperor in Rome, pray for that guy. So supplicating prayer is essential if the church is going to thrive. The second thing we discovered is sound teaching. We have to give ourselves to sound teaching if we're going to thrive as a congregation. We need to be in the Word and not just listening to the Word, but doing the Word as well. That's important. The third thing, spiritual leadership. We need to be identifying and raising up leaders and empowering them and praying for them and supporting them, and even submitting to them as that we have spiritual leadership in the church. And then the fourth thing is sensitive care. We need to be sensitive, especially to the vulnerable among us and the vulnerable in our community. That's part of the essential task of the church. And I want to pause here and just say this. What's true of the community is true of us as individuals as well. I don't know if you've ever kind of had a reflective moment 
and realized, you know, I'm, my faith just feels a little fragile right now, or I'm feeling just a little bit distant from God. And uh, I have people come in and ask me that question, and I've reflected on that myself. And I have to ask these questions. Well, how's your prayer life? <laughs> Are you praying? I remember there's a whole season of my life when I just couldn't pray spontaneously, so I wrote out a short prayer, and every morning I just read it. That was as much as I could do. And if that's all you can do, pray that prayer. But we need to be praying. We have to ask the question, are, are we reading the Bible? Remember the old Sunday school song, read your Bible, pray every day. I won't sing the whole thing. But, you know, it's true. There's something in that that's very, very true. And if we're not reading our Bible, but we wonder, huh, I feel distant from God. Well, maybe pick up the good book and start reading. Or spiritual leadership. If, are we submitting to our leaders? I know that seems weird in our culture sometimes, but if we've identified and approved and set up leaders, but then we're constantly rebelling against them, and then we wonder why we're distant from God, maybe there's a key here that we need to pay attention to. Or sensitive care. Are we actually reaching out and caring for those that are vulnerable? So these things are important, not just as a congregation, but as individuals. Well, we want to add one last thing today, and that is solid witness. If we're going to thrive as a congregation, if we're going to thrive as an individual follower of Jesus, then we need to develop solid witness. The early followers of Jesus were called witnesses. Today is actually Pentecost Sunday. It marks 50 days since Easter, and we don't do a big thing sometimes in Baptist circles about Pentecost. It's not just for the Pentecostals, by the way. We can celebrate Pentecost. It's the giving of the Spirit, and in many ways, the birthday of the church. But in Acts, we read Jesus saying to his followers, you shall be my witnesses. And we are meant to be witnesses to God's goodness and grace today. We are meant to be witnesses to the resurrection today. That's part of our calling. That's part of what are we supposed to do. So what's the key to effective witness? Is it to be like Billy Graham and have great crowds of people? Or maybe it's to be like William Carey, that missionary, and have great courage. Or maybe it's to be like Mother Teresa and have great compassion. All those things are important, aren't they? We need an audience. We need a crowd. We, we need courage. We need compassion. But the Bible tells us again and again that the key to effective witness is character. Character is the key to effective witness. We find it again in this passage. Character is the foundation. In Titus chapter 1, Paul warns Titus about a group of people who claim to know God, but their actions, but by their actions, they deny him. Have you seen people like that? Have you ever experienced that in your life? Claim to know God, but by our actions, we deny him. Sometimes if people ask me, do you believe in God? I feel like saying, well, you need to ask my neighbor. Because it depends on my actions. My actions will reveal what I really believe. And that's the challenge of faith, isn't it? That's the challenge that Titus is to bring to the church. And so instead of that, instead of just talking the talk, we're meant to walk the walk. That's the idea. That's going to be the foundation of our witness. Because if we say a lot of great words about the gospel, but our lives are living as if God doesn't exist, then our words are going to be useless, aren't they? So that's the big challenge. 
And so Paul lays it out. What does this look like then in community? And he identifies five different groups. Now, I'm not going to get you to raise your hand when you feel that you're in one of these groups. You can do that in your heart, starting with the older men. We had an older man up here giving a prayer for offering today, which was wonderful. <clears throat> I'm surprised he didn't use the microphone. Anyway, older men. And it's interesting, older men, that's changed, right? So if you're hitting 60, you're still basically a teenager these days. But older men, Paul says, make sure that they show self-control, that they don't fly off the handle, that they act their age, that they make good choices. Maybe don't buy that sports car this week. I don't know, but he's encouraging older men to behave accordingly. That's what it looks like to walk the walk. Older women, live in a way that honors God. Go easy on the wine. <laughs> Avoid gossip. Younger women, this is where it gets a little sticky in our culture perhaps. Love your husbands and kids. Do good and submit to your husbands. We'll get to that point in a minute. Younger men, Younger men, Paul is very succinct. He only gives them one instruction. You know what it is? Rein it in. <laughs> All those passions that are raging up inside you, just, dude, rein it in. Younger men, rein it in. And then he gives instructions to slaves. Slaves, don't talk back to your masters. Don't steal from them. Show that you can be trusted. So it's interesting. Paul says that we need to live a life that's worthy of this calling, that we need to live out the gospel. And here's a glimpse of what it might look like, that your behavior matches what you believe. And that's what he's laying out for us. But we have to understand that there's a cultural context to this, right? I mean, the clue is the instructions to slaves. We don't have a lot of slaves, and we're not thinking of North American slavery. We're thinking of the ancient world, Greco-Roman type slavery, when there would have been a lot of that in the church. And we don't have that now. So we have to be careful. I know a lot of people want to jump right to the workplace and say, this applies to you with your boss. I'm not sure that it does. I think we're meant to catch a glimpse of what Paul was saying was appropriate behavior in the cultural context at the time. And that also applies to women and husbands and their role in society in the workplace. So we have to be careful because I think some of these words can be used in an abusive way if we're not careful. So this is more, meant to be more of a description rather than a prescription uh, to us and how we're to behave today. But there still are eternal principles. So what is the eternal principle? Well, the eternal principle is this. Live in such a way that our lives will make the teaching about God and our Savior attractive to others. Live in such a way that our lives will make this teaching about God attractive to others. Do we live that way? What a challenge for us. Share a story, uh, shared a story a few weeks ago about my dad. And my dad passed away in 2010, and I sometimes reflect on his life. Um, he was a little bit uncomfortable in a church setting, but he had a really strong faith. He didn't always have that strong faith. In fact, uh, for a period of time in his life, he was very anti-Bible. I mentioned when my mom became a believer in Christ and she was first starting to read the Bible, at one point he ripped it up and chucked it in the fire and, and uh, forbid her from ever reading the Bible again. And so it was a great surprise 
uh, one day when I saw my dad kneeling beside his bed, bawling his eyes out, and giving his heart to Jesus. That's a, a, a moment that is stuck in my mind and has been formative in my faith. So how did that happen? How did it come where this, this man who was, um, he was an angry man, but he was a tough man. He was a miner. He was a welder. He once kicked a priest down the stairs and across the street. Um, is this kind of guy. How does it come from that to the point where he's kneeling beside his bed, bawling his eyes out, accepting Jesus? The key to my dad's story was a man by the name of Bob Lynn. Bob Lynn was a shantyman. Anybody ever hear of the shantyman's mission? Maybe not here. In BC and Ontario, it was fairly popular. Shantyman's ministry were these kind of rough and ready men that would go into the work camps. So sometimes, mostly the logging camps in BC and Ontario, sometimes they would hike in 50 kilometers, carrying their own provisions. They'd get to the work camps and they'd live among the men that were logging or working and they would just tell them about Jesus, hand out Bibles, have prayer, prayer gatherings, try and keep them from blowing all their money in the pub when they went into town, those kind of things. Now, there's a, an article in the Toronto Star in the 1970s about the shantyman's ministry, and it said this, If you have the zeal of a Billy Graham, the toughness of a Green Beret, the desire to lead an outdoor life in some of the most rugged terrain in Canada, and in the time of inflation, can live on about $35 a week, then consider joining the shantymen. Well, sign me up. I mean, if that's an ad for missions, I don't know what is. But Bob Lynn was that kind of guy. And I, I just barely remember Bob Lynn, but I remember him being that kind of guy. He, he built log homes. He would hike into the woods on his own all the time. And he had a passion for the gospel and to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. My dad recognized something in Bob Lynn that he found attractive. Attractive. Not only his rough and ready way of life, but there's something about the uh, softness of the gospel that was in Bob Lynn's life that my dad found attractive. But there was a problem. Bob Lynn, by the time my dad met him, had Parkinson's disease. And my dad would go over to his house and ask him questions, and Bob at first was able to slowly move the pages and point to a Bible verse and say a few words. But eventually, Bob Lynn couldn't talk anymore. He could only blink. And he would blink, you know, two uh, blinks for a yes and one blink for a no. And my dad would still go over. Because it wasn't Bob Lynn's great words that won my dad over to Christ. There was something attractive in his life, something attractive in his spirit. And uh, there was one night, of course, as I mentioned, my dad just, the, the spirit broke through. <laughs> and my dad gave his heart to Christ. He went over to Bob Lynn's house the next day, and Bob Lynn had enough of a voice to say, welcome to the kingdom, even before my dad opened his mouth. The next day, Bob Lynn died. And it's a, it's a remarkable story. I sometimes think about it, I think, did that actually happen like that? And I check with my mom, and she's like, yep. And we still have Bob Lynn's Bible in our family to this day. What attracted my dad? What was it? It, it wasn't Bob Lynn's greatness. It was something of God's spirit in his life that went out as fruit, as good fruit, that my dad found attractive. Here's the good news about this. Because sometimes then we start to feel the pressure. Oh, I've got to be perfect in order to attract people to Jesus. What if I'm the cause of their stumbling? Well, the good news is this. We don't bear this burden of being a solid witness alone. In fact, what we find in this passage 
is that the witness to the gospel anticipates a community of the faithful. The witness to the gospel anticipates a community of the faithful that we're actually meant to do this together. That we're actually meant to help each other, to support and encourage each other, even to rebuke and correct one another. We're meant to hold each other up, to equip and empower one another as a community to do this together for the sake of the gospel. And the beautiful thing in this passage as well, I don't know if you picked up on it, is that this community and the the anticipation is that it's a multi-generational community, that it's a diverse community in terms of age. That's what we're meant to do so that we learn from one another. So we raise up the next generation and are challenged by them. And sometimes that's hard to do. I'd say there's two things that are absolutely key if we're going to do that well in this place as a multi-generational worshiping and witnessing community. One is proximity. We need to be in the same space with those who are different age, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different experience. We need to be together in the same space. And the second key is curiosity. We need to become curious about one another's lives and ask questions. I remember when we first brought Eric McComish on as youth pastor. It's coming up three years ago. Hard to believe. I got so many phone calls. Who is this guy? He looks like someone that you brought out of the Wild West show, his big beard and red hair. He looks much bigger on the stage, by the way. And he's covered in tattoos. What do you do with that? And I would always say to people that were expressing concern, have you talked to him? Have you spent some time with him? Proximity. Just be in the same room. Get to hear his heart. And then curiosity. Ask him. Ask him why he's got those things on his body and what he does with them all those tattoos, and get to know the person. I think we can do that with a lot of different things. Proximity, we need to be in shared space together and curiosity. And when we do that, then we begin to share life. Then we begin to build one another up so that our characters can be shaped, so that our witness can be solid. This is the community that we're given to in order to witness to the gospel. My favorite quote in the world is probably from uh, Leslie Newbegin, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. And I'll read it again. It's a little bit longer, but listen to this. It's been very formative in my life. He says, How is it possible that the gospel should be credible and that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? How? I'm suggesting that the only answer The only full expression of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel. Evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles, conferences, and even books such as this one. But I am saying that these are all secondary and that they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they were rooted in and lead back to a believing community. That we need to be together as a believing community so that we can be solid in our witness to the world. This believing community will thrive when we give ourselves to at least these five things. Supplicating prayer, sound teaching, spiritual leadership, sensitive care, and solid witness.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the challenge of your word. We have to confess, Father, that sometimes we read it and we think, there's no way that I'm up to that task. So thank you that you have not left us alone. That we don't have to bear this burden as an individual, but that we get to share it together as a community. As a community of the broken, as wounded healers entering into the world to bring redemption and peace and goodness in your name. Father, thank you on this Pentecost Sunday that we also get to celebrate the fact that you sent your Spirit. So ultimately, we don't have to try harder to get this done, but really we have to yield more to what your Spirit has for us. So help us to do that, Father. Help us to give ourselves to you so that you might work your work through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.